Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific back in studio in Wellington this week. Coming up. Drug syndicate groups are continually exploiting our vast and porous maritime borders. Pacific law enforcement agencies increasing efforts to combat transnational crime. I could not find an English word that can describe the reaction. Nauru is seeking support with preparations for the 2026 Micronesian Games and... We need to have better access to climate finances so that we can implement our projects. We Talanoa to a Samoan climate change advocate who's urging Pacific leaders to make climate financing more accessible. But before we get into all that, three members of parliament convicted of bribery in Tonga have been unseated after the country's Supreme Court dismissed their appeals. RNZ Pacific's Finau Funua reports. Tongan MPs the Tafu Moyaki, Boasi Day and Sangsta Saulala have lost their seats after just seven months in power. Radio Tonga reports the three found guilty of bribing voters in Tonga's 2021 general elections lost their appeals with Tonga's Supreme Court ordering an immediate termination of the three MPs' tenures. House Speaker Lord Fatafehi Fakafanua announced their departures in Parliament after receiving the final judgment from court officials. Another MP convicted of bribery, former Prime Minister Bohiva Tuyane Toa, is expected to receive a final ruling on his case soon. Last week, Pacific law enforcement stakeholders met in Fiji to discuss threats facing the region from activities carried out by international criminal syndicates. Representatives from national police agencies, customs and immigration organisations and academia shared about existing mechanisms, identified current and emerging challenges as well as opportunities to address transnational organised crime. RNZ Pacific Regional Correspondent Kelvin Anthony filed the following report. It's read here by Lydia Lewis. Stakeholders attending the inaugural three-day forum in Nadi agreed that the damage done by well-networked international criminal groups will continue to hurt Pacific Island countries if the region fails to collectively respond to the security threat. And with vulnerability as the standout theme, Fiji's acting defence minister, Chone Osamate, said the Pacific region will become even more attractive to criminals and syndicates. Drug syndicate groups are continually exploiting our vast and porous maritime borders to import and stockpile drugs for their end markets in Australia, New Zealand, Asia and North America. And if I'm reading the reports right, one of the other problems that we have now, we're beginning to see the use of these drugs in our own island nations. Osamate warns human trafficking is also on the rise and Pacific Island countries are seen as a hotspot. He says human trafficking is a crime against humanity that not only crosses international borders, but one that is also present in Pacific communities and different industries. Pacific countries' poorest borders, limited border security capabilities and developing socio-economic backgrounds, he says, make them vulnerable to becoming choice destinations for this degraded crime. It is because of these factors that organized criminal syndicates see our region as an opportunity to progress their high-profit and low-risk illegal operations. So it is pertinent, it is important, it is critical that these types of forums must be held and that we must talk about these challenges and how best we as a region can use our resources collectively to fight together as one. 
The negative impacts of the coronavirus pandemic, he added, is also driving Pacific Islanders to join the multi-billion dollar criminal networks. Pacific Islands Forum Secretary-General Henry Puna agreed with Usamate's sentiments that the region remains susceptible to Tinok. Puna said regional cooperation is essential for effectively tackling transitional organised crimes to make transformational changes to achieve peace and security for the Blue Pacific. Geopolitical competition, the COVID-19 pandemic and the ongoing unrest in Ukraine continue to exacerbate the region's economic and development concerns. Our geography, situated between manufacturers and markets, makes our region vulnerable to transnational organised crimes. Puna said addressing transitional crime did not require establishing new regional arrangements, but it will require reviewing existing frameworks, identifying loopholes and establishing shared priorities for cooperation. We must establish a whole-of-systems approach where we strive for effective, open and honest relationships, inclusive and enduring partnerships with each other within our region and with our partners outside of our region. We must establish trust mechanisms that ensures necessary information and intelligence are shared and necessary actions are taken to disrupt organized crime infiltration into our region. And we must improve data collection and analysis to improve TNOC policy development into the future. The conference, organised by the Australia Pacific Security College, concluded with a closed-door meeting amongst law enforcement officials and Pacific leaders on Thursday. It is expected that an action plan to combat crime in the Pacific will be released soon. Nauru is looking for more donor partners to support the country as it looks to build a new athletic stadium and bolster infrastructure ahead of the 2026 Micronesian Games. The Games Council has confirmed Nauru will host the large sporting event for the first time. Minister for Sports, Maverick Ioi, spoke exclusively to RNZ Pacific reporter Lydia Lewis, saying Nauru is now looking at building an athletic stadium and a proper gym facility for its weightlifters to train in. When receiving the, um, the news over the weekend, I could not find an English word that can describe the reaction. And the people of Nauru, also, when they received the the news, it was it was something that with this, this country has ever it has never happened in this country. The the main issue here is the infrastructure too, and that that will bring in when that will bring in additional revenue and create jobs. And there's a lot of possibilities that are on the horizon when when uh, landing this uh, the bid. The country to host it is really big, uh, big news for us. And uh, what's very important for us, too, is the people. It's all about the people. The main overarching is the job employment. It creates a lot of jobs. How many jobs do you anticipate this to create? Well, at this moment, it's, everything's still premature. So I cannot uh, actually comment further on that. But as uh, things go on, I will... Yeah, I would like gladly uh, brief you on how many jobs and yeah, but we do know there's a big, big job ahead of us in terms of infrastructure and job employment. Tell me more about the infrastructure. What infrastructure is to be built to facilitate the games? Well, for starters, we need an athletics. The first athletics, we don't have a proper athletic stadium. 
to conduct any 400s or 800s or 100-meter sprints, any synthetic tracks. We're lacking that at the moment. There's some brief planning, but it never came to fruition. But now that we, um, we've landed the contract, it'll force our hands to actually dedicate ourselves into building a proper stadium and many other many other different types of stadiums that we're looking forward towards. When you say many other different stadiums, what other, so obviously there's the athletic stadium um, on the horizon, uh, but what else um, comes to mind that needs to be built? We had a discussion, sports department, just for our, say, our main, uh, the dominant sports that in Nauru, say weightlifting and um, athletics, and especially weightlifting, because that's, that, that, that um, that particular sports needs proper facilities. They um, they are a proper gym, and then what we say about that proper gym is that like for particular elite athletes, that we don't want them to be are uh, just training in just an average gym. We want them to be a proper similar to the AIS system in in Canberra in Australia. So we're looking looking forward to something like that. Tell me about the preparation to the Commonwealth Games not having those facilities and how adding this infrastructure and building, you know, a really great gym for these athletes, will it even change the future of weightlifting in Nauru? Yes, um, as you know, Lydia, Nauru has always been dominant in the sport of weightlifting. And um, ever since then, this is what, 20, 15 years ago, uh, ever since then we haven't, actually broke and we became a plateau for us and I think we're lacking the proper infrastructures and and gyms and etc so that we can go grow beyond um, what we where we were and um, we over all these years we haven't broken the the dream of winning a gold medal in the Olympics so I think the main campaign for us is to break the duck. What needs to happen now on the financial side to actually prop up this infrastructure? Prior to Nora submitting a bid, we've briefly spoken to some donor funders and they've agreed. But when the news came out, I instantly went into the office and that started the conversations with some some donor partners and they're, they're quite excited as well. You know, they, It's the first time for Nora, so the donor partners are quite really happy and we're still looking for more donor partners who can contribute to Nauru's growth of economy, which, which is uh, contributing to the, 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 the development of the sports stadium, etc. Who are the current donor partners and who would you like to extend a request to if you would like to do so? Uh, it's actually broad what we're looking for because um, we don't have anyone in particular say, headhunting a particular country for donor partners or we're, we're, we're just open. We're, we're friends to all, you know. Um, we're just going to throw the net out there to all who are interested in contributing to Nauru's growth. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? The only thing I would like to add is I would like to thank the supporting countries that, that voted for Nauru. I know it, it, it's a big job ahead of us, and we thank them for their belief for voting us to host the Micronesian Games 2026. Uh, we assure you, we won't let you down. We'll put on a great show for you.
a Samoan climate champion is calling on Pacific leaders to make climate funding more accessible for local communities. Waikato University graduate Nick Moyono is passionate about energy efficiency and climate action. Nick works with the Samoa Electric Power Corporation, but his consultancy also helps guide local tourism businesses cut expenditure on energy and move towards renewable sources to help tackle the climate crisis. Nick is also the Global Energy Ambassador for Climate Linkup. He does climate podcasts and he's on the Board of Trustees for the Commonwealth of Human Ecologies Council and a curator for the Global Shapers RPR. He joins me now. Talo Falava, Nick, you sound like a very busy young man in the climate change space. Tell us more about what drives you. I guess looking at the Pacific, we already know that climate change is a really big issue. And you don't actually really know how impactful it is when you are living so far away. So being here in the Pacific and being in Samoa, you know, the impacts of climate change are just catalyzed um, over, over the years. And, you know, we have science science evidence to back, back this claim. Um, and I guess looking forward, we don't know if, if we will still be a country in the next 50 years. We don't know if we will still be alive. Um, there's another, there's a number of Pacific islands that will become climate refugees in the, in the, in the, in the future. And so that's kind of, I guess, the fear that I, that I have in wanting to drive climate action and also help understand that there are various ways so that we can mitigate and adapt to the impacts of climate change. Um, one of the ways is obviously becoming 100% renewable, and that's something that is voiced very well by all countries. But also recently we've started to see a trend in you know, becoming a low carbon future and some buzzwords such as net zero. Um, and so that's really focusing on individuals wanting to help realize and know, I guess, gain an understanding of, of how they can contribute in reducing their energy consumption and indirectly reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. And all of these collective works together, they all contribute in um, the overall end goal of saving the Pacific. Um, there's, a, there's a number of... Uh, Pacific climate groups in New Zealand um, that are currently in Fiji and promoting, um, I guess, the impacts of climate change and um, and uh, like wanting to implement new policies and new frameworks so that it makes it easier for us to transition to um, to become more, more uh, renewable and have all these things in place so that we can have a future for us in the future, a future for us long-term. Um, so I guess those are one of the, the major things that is driving me into wanting to work in this space um, and share the knowledge because in the next 20 years, we will still be here. Uh, we will still be advocating for, for climate change. Uh, we'll still be here um, in the future, trying to push and drive uh, the promises that have been made today. Um, and so I'm a big advocate for young leaders wanting to look for a future in uh, or look for a career path in anything to do with climate change, especially renewable energy um, in the Pacific. And so those are kind of, I guess, some of the goals of, of why I'm doing this. Mm, thank you. Bye,
And what about your own journey? Did, did you always want to be an engineer? And were you always this active in the climate change space? Well, there was actually, um, I had no idea about uh, renewable energy engineering. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do early on. All I knew is that I was very good at science and I was very, also quite passionate in the environments. You know, I love the outdoors. I love fighting. I, I love doing various activities outdoors. Um, and so being in Samoa, it, it kind of became a little bit difficult to find a career pathway in that. And um, I guess there was no one that I could look up to or find advice into pathways leading into whatever that career goal is. Um, and I guess over time, I realized that uh, there was a big need for Samoa to become 100% renewable. And that started back in, I remember, back in 2015. Um, sorry, 2013, 14, when I was just coming to the completion of my National University of Samoa Studies. Um, and so I seek advice from the utility where I'm currently working at, at the Electric Power Corporation. And one of the major advices that I got from the CEO back then was that they need renewable energy engineers to implement and drive you know, these goals forward. Uh, and so that was essentially a starting point for me to look into a career for that. Um, and as my research developed, I saw that it aligned with what I wanted to do. You know, I was good at science and I also had a good, a big passion for the environment and, and the outdoors kind of stuff. And, um, and it aligned perfectly with all of that. But as I researched further and went to uni and realized that, you know, this is actually a bigger issue than what it currently is. You know, there's climate change is a big umbrella of various different pillars where you have all these different professions working continuously and in parallel towards one goal. So we don't actually, um, so I guess at the end of it, looking back, I think I made the right choice. And I think I'm in a position where I can advocate future students who are in NUS or in high school to who are looking for a career in um, energy, renewable energy, or even in climate, because I know that there, there are a few professions, not just in STEM, but in law, you have environmental lawyers, um, and then you have policymakers who are focused on climate change policy. Um, and so you have all these various professions that are branching under climate change. Um, and so I guess I can provide some sort of support for uh, students here in the Pacific, especially in Samoa, um, and share a little bit about my my journey and how I became where I am right now. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Um, now, I kind of answered my other questions. So I'm going to move on to now on the climate change front with Pacific leaders. If they would hear this interview, what would you say to them? If there's one message for me to for me to say for them to hear is that we need to have better access to climate finances so that we can uh, implement our projects so that we can deliver on our climate goals. So we're not just particularly focusing on just the utilities, not just focusing on becoming 100% renewable, but we need to have 
finances, we need to have research, we need to focus our efforts on the demand side, we need to focus our efforts on, you know, our low carbon future, we don't know what that is yet, and that's why I'm advocating so much, because we are so focused on one side of the coin, that, that, that in order to, to, you know, have this uh, image of becoming 100% renewable, we also have to look at becoming net zero. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Thank you, Tomas. Looking for the next time.